Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Friday, February 11th, going into Super Bowl weekend. Well, I wish we could talk more about the Super Bowl, but the news is all around us. Our Chatterbox segment features Sabrina Nanji, Sylvain Charlebois. We talk about the protests in Windsor and Sarnia. And as you're listening to this, things could be evolving and moving on that front. But we give you the latest in our perspective on what we've got the appetite for and what we don't when it comes to getting the bridge back and operational. It's incredibly important. We're not closing down side streets. We're closing down the main way that goods and services come into our country. We are. Uh, at least via land we are. It's incredibly important uh, topic to get into. Dr. Nicole Sapphire on COVID-19. She's got a phenomenal book, and she brings it straight up the middle. I love that, her COVID perspective. And we talk as well about some of the shifting tides in the United States and their influence on where we're going with COVID in Canada, especially uh, with schools and where we're at as well. And our Super Bowl halftime quiz takes to the airwaves also. Toronto Today for a Friday starts now. Feels like a different weekend. I know I mentioned earlier that uh, I'm taking my first flight about an hour from now. Not nervous about the circumstance. Just a lot to organize. Travel always says. I, I always like doing those things myself. Um, used to work for a company way back when that would, oh my goodness, it's so much more fun to book your own travel. And because you just know then nothing's confusing. Uh, you, you know that if it's a mistake, it's on you. And I've made, I went to visit my wife in Vancouver when she was at Olympics uh, writing and I went out for a weekend and I was at this radio station then. It wasn't at the other one. I was at this radio station in uh, February of 2010 and I booked the flight. I remember sitting in the office at, uh, at uh, AM 640, then the home of the Leafs. I remember being on Expedia and booking it that day. And then I remember Going out to Vancouver, I think I had a, uh, I took my kids to my uh, in-laws and they were at that point in time four and like one and a half to where you're almost still counting months. He's 21 months. Oh, great. That's usually a prison sentence, but okay. He's 21 months. So they're four and 21 months. So what ends up happening is I take them to the in-laws around uh, Friday. And I come back, I'm by myself, um, and I've got to wake up in the morning really early to fly to Vancouver. I've got a, I, I want to say a 545 flight. I know there's not flights all night long. And, uh, and I, I get to Vancouver, and I see uh, my wife at the airport. That's great. Uh, she meets me there. She's got work to do. I go to some hockey games that day. Uh, we go to Gastown. We have nice dinner. I meet um, her roommate. She was living out in Burnaby, coming into Vancouver every day. So, yeah, it was... Uh, it was great, but then Sunday comes, and I think I'm flying home Sunday night. Like, it really was meant to be get in Saturday, fly home Sunday, and be home in time for Monday's show. Um, well, I get to the airport Sunday night, and they're like, buddy, you don't fly till tomorrow night. What? Like, I'm there around, I'm there around midnight, 11.45, I think. I thought I had a local flight from Vancouver. They're like, look at the date. It's Monday. <laughs> and I remember it really well, because Virtue and Moyer were winning the gold medal in the um, in the ice dancing, at the same time all this was happening, I'm glancing at the TV, going, "Oh, cool for Virtue and Moyer," and I'm an idiot because I've I'm here an hour a day early at the airport. And my wife's like, "I got work to do. I can't hang around with you." I went to a movie by myself. I went to uh, Shutter Island, right? Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, found my way around. I bought a, a a ticket to go see the women's hockey. Bottom lining it, I'm uh, I, I can be a disorganized traveler, so 
So I got a I got a long afternoon ahead getting all the ducks in a row. Got a PCR test around 11:40 this morning at Shoppers Drug Mart. A little swizzle in the nose. I'm ready to go. This will be a busy news day too. So I'm going to be keeping. Um, I can't shut it off um, until I get on the plane tonight tomorrow morning. But I can't shut off what's going to happen today. Uh, we're going to see a different approach. Dave Bradley referenced it in the newscast. The province is going to be uh, a little more firm. And I'm sorry, it's about time. You know, I hear from people on the text line. I do. And and I, I respect people's opinions. They're respectful with me. They get that same respect back. And people are saying, it's nice that this will finally affect people who haven't lost a paycheck so far. And listen, when it comes to the, uh, the quote-unquote laptop class, you're not going to hear much from me, okay? Uh, there's people that are going to have to put gas in their car again. They're going to have to go back to the office. They're going to have to be out there on foot. They're going to have to commute. They're going to have, you got it. I'm, I hear you. I want a lot of stuff back that is not back yet. Okay. And that day is coming. And I'll get to that in this segment as well. Trust you and believe me, I will get there. That's not what's happening right now. And, and the idea of protesting the mandates is affecting very hardworking people who haven't been at home on laptops. Like I have sometimes, and maybe you have sometimes and whether teachers want to be in classrooms, we know that. We know that. I think people who do what I do want to be in studios looking at faces. I think that also. So saying all that, no, what this is now affecting is auto workers. Auto workers getting laid off because of this the, the border uh, blockage that wasn't even a conversation last weekend at this time. Let's wind the clocks back to last Friday, shall we? All we talked about last Friday was, it's, it continues on in Ottawa. They're at about eight days now. What's going to happen in Toronto tonight? You remember the the and then when I say narrative, people roll their eyes because they think you hear, oh, that's the narrative, like that's some kind of nefarious plan, and and people want you to think that. But no, a narrative is is a angle that people are talking about. It's not some. It doesn't have to be uh, devious in nature. So the narrative last week at this time was healthcare workers are afraid to go to their job some of them, and that they're told not to dress like healthcare workers and that they will be concerned about protecting hospital row. Okay. Okay. Let's take that. Let's take that at face value. Let's, let's split the pie up a little bit here and take that at face value. Um, hospital row was blocked off. Uh, transport trucks couldn't get there. Concrete barriers were enacted. It was uh, very much. Uh, it was a city on edge a little bit because we watched what happened in Ottawa for nine days and we didn't want to see some of that. It was inevitable that trucks and uh, protesters and a, I guess, a quote unquote convoy went somewhere. So a lot of it was up and down Blur Street. A lot of it was up and down a couple of the other main arteries getting into Toronto. There is a bracing in Toronto already that we'll deal with later in the show with what's expected today. But we didn't even have a conversation about the idea that the uh, th where 40% of trade comes from over that Windsor-Detroit bridge and to a lesser extent Sarnia Port Huron would be blocked off. Here's the thing also. There's about like 80 people doing it. 80 people are absolutely crippling, like punching in the back of the head over and over again our economy at the Windsor-Detroit uh, border crossing. Maybe 80 people, tops. There's not a lot of giant transport trucks. There's not a lot like they're going to have to remove these people. That's it. And that's that. So 
you're you understand that we're not just talking about well some people haven't lost a penny and some people are working from home i got it i hear you everybody who is has been able to do those things understands their um their good fortune that they can this isn't a pandemic in 1986 if it were now by the way if it were schools wouldn't have been closed as long as they have if we couldn't teach at all we would have gone back more frequently more often and there would have been more demand to do it but there's teachers that don't want to go back they have their reasons there's university professors that don't want to go back there's people who work in sales that don't want to go back okay so got a lot of people that don't want to go back and a ton of people still that do. I don't think it's a majority either way. But once you hit the border, once you hit the main economic artery of trade, that's a major issue. Who could argue otherwise? Sarnia's mayor, Mike Bradley, was on the show yesterday with me on Toronto Today in the 7 o'clock hour, and he spoke of the need to push this aside and have conversations about mandates. But he doesn't think that this can end almost you know, peacefully, he's worried about tension spilling in to something where there's something violent. And I don't blame him. Here's what he said yesterday. So it's frightening people. And they also don't know what the outcome is. And it's a sad prediction to make. But you can't keep on having this type of anger and activity and disruption without someone getting hurt. And that's where this is leading. The activities, the rhetoric, the, the anger, the anti-government stuff is leading to a temperature that is so high, someone's going to get hurt, whether it's in Sarnia or Windsor or in Ottawa. That's his opinion. He's entitled to it. It's his city. He knows what the tent He's there, and you and I are not in Sarnia. I mean, I've been to Sarnia. It's beautiful. Uh, maybe not this time of year or next month or the month after that, but it's beautiful. Um, so one of those circumstances that allows the province to step in and remove protesters. Again, these are the things we haven't seen. People handcuffed. These are the things we haven't seen. People put into paddy wagons. It's probably my sense, maybe it's yours as well, that that is what it will take. And that is what it will it will be necessary. Because I'm not sitting here impacted as much as you might think by the, the these protests at these border crossings. But I know auto workers are, and I know people that are living paycheck to paycheck are, okay? I mean, I, I absolutely understand that there's a little bit of, oh, now it's affecting you, so now you're paying attention. Yeah, that was fine the first few days. That was understandable and uh, recognizable that that was a emotion that you were allowed to have. But if the people protesting at, at the Ambassador Bridge can't see the ripple effect, can't see the impact they're having, um, and, and they do feel an emotional impact because they are emboldened. We talked about this. You let things go on for this long and that long, and you don't step in. It's amazing how it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. It's really amazing how difficult it is to do that. Let me switch to this really quick. Uh, we'll hear um, Dr. Kieran Moore we heard from yesterday, and he's going to talk more to the province today. And I don't know how fast this can move, but this has moved with the snap of a finger for sure. Alberta and Jason Kenney lifted restrictions on Tuesday night going into Wednesday. So we talked about it on Wednesday's show. Uh, Dr. Moore said there's a strong possibility of restrictions being pulled back. Here's where he wasn't sure, but here's where I've got an observation about some of the tone and the language here that stuck out to me yesterday. I want to know if you agree with it. Here's Dr. Kieran Moore talking about, he gets a question about masks. And he gets a question about masking in schools. Here's what he said. I, I would think my initial feeling is that we keep um, 
initially measures in the school setting to ensure um, that parents have confidence, uh, workers have confidence, and students have confidence uh, to, to go to school. Uh, so I anticipate that the, the, the measures that we may remove at a societal level will remain in the school setting a bit longer uh, uh, to maintain that safety protocol. Uh, we don't want to lose any days in school. We want to maintain presenteeism in the school setting. Yeah. I understand him saying that. And I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of people were dismayed about that. Oh, my God, these, these masks are going to be around forever. I want them off my kid. That's getting to be more a common refrain. And uh, and I understand it. I'm, I'm here with you. My kids get what they are and what they aren't and what they do and what they don't. But um, I'm not sure if you, you're parenting a five or six or seven year old and especially parenting them in the last two years. I think they I, I don't buy into the logic that they're going to be the last thing to go. And I think he has to be measured about this. If he says, yep, we can't wait to get these off. You know that there's going to be that's when the dam gets broken here. So when governments remove restrictions okay, and by the way, there's nothing to say that you can't keep wearing masks in public. You can do all these things if you so choose. But what Kieran Moore can't say right now is something I'll say. And everybody's probably saying right now, if now is not the time, if it's not the time now, or two weeks from now, or four weeks from now, you tell me when it is. And if you don't have it, first of all, you don't have data that they work on kids. You don't have the data. No one has that data. Okay, five, six, seven-year-olds that like stopping the spread in places where they eat, in places where they have phys ed, in places where they fiddle with masks. Um, so if it's not now, you tell me when that is. And if we accept, and I think we should, we're going to see more variants. COVID's going to be with us for years. Then we once this surge ends. And it is uh, the cases are tumbling right now. I, I will absolutely say you can't live in a perpetual state of emergency. You can, but you're not going to make me and you're not going to make our listeners and you're not going to make the good people who listen to the show who I hear from regularly. And I'm not and I don't think we can impose that burden on our kids indefinitely for something that poses a smaller risk to them. Public health leadership, that trust, it's really eroded right now. You know it and I know it. You're educated. You're listening to the show. You're rational. Sometimes I even am. There's plenty of places, pretty disillusioned with uh, where the movement is right now. Okay. And that's great that people who are teachers are saying, well, you know, we wanted to wait until we got vaccinated. You were able to get vaccinated as a teacher and you were able to work from home. And and, and I, I could I'd have the option too to do that. But millions of other essential workers aren't able to do that. They went to work for ages before vaccines were available. So who are the guinea pigs? Many essential workers say they don't have the option of going remote. They don't make as much money as teachers. So we got to watch it here. Okay. We really do. I, I don't, I don't like playing the game of classism and privilege and whatnot. Everybody earns their own circumstances in life, but we got to be really cautious here to uh, understand that this, this is probably the time. And over the next month or so, you're going to see that the, Keep saying it. The boat's going the other way, it's going the other way down the water. And all our hopes and dreams about where we're going to go is on that boat. So you can join us or be late for the boat. That's it. But it's not coming back in your direction. If you want masks perpetually on kids and, oh, my goodness, there might be another variant. That's up to you. Risk mitigate for your own household, as I always say. Alex Brown is a political writer and commentator and uh, joins me to talk about what he saw in Ottawa. Alex, it is great to have you on the show. It's uh, it's interesting. We've talked about the difference, how to delineate between the organizers of the protest 
and I suppose what we call some some regular Canadians that went to Ottawa. Tell the audience what you saw there. Um, there is a tale of two protests. There are elements that put together that MOU, that Memorandum of Understanding, and it is incomprehensible. Immediately uh, disqualifying. I understand why some cannot divorce themselves once they read it from, they cannot take the, the convoy from the cause. It is just a, a forever no for them. When I arrived on Wellington Street, and I told the cab driver when I got off the train, uh, take me to the action because I figured. <laughs> no if you say that life, any other weekend in Ottawa, they're like, it's pretty boring here, man. Like you're in the wrong city, but okay. Yeah, it's the city right? that fun forgot, right? And so yeah. I thought this is my one chance to do this in Ottawa. He laughed. I laughed. <laughs> I looked like a, a dummy. And I got a different picture than, you know, the, 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 the sort of element that would have put together that, that memorandum. The first people I met were diverse vibrant, enthusiastic. People were hanging out by these sort of trash barrel fires and having conversations about where they were from. Um, many, many Quebecers. Uh, I was the only guy who had just showed up from Toronto, the many from out West. And all they wanted to talk about was the mandates. They just wanted the mandates to go away. They felt hurt by them. Many of them had been vaccinated, double vaccinated, but they were worried about where this was starting to go. And so they felt like they had to make pilgrimage in a way to this sort of, they were there to be around people in, in a way in which they haven't felt in a long time. They were there to fly their Canadian flags and their fleur-de-lis. They were there to hug strangers and, and sing the national anthem and eat, and eat free barbecue and set off fireworks and dance. There are actual dance clubs. There's a legitimate in the history of Ottawa, it's the most fun dance club of all time. I understand that it would be incredibly frustrating for many locals. Mm -hmm. And it was just this all-night affair. And it left a, an immediate impression on me on that Friday night. And then coming back on the Saturday as well, um, those were the stories I heard. There was no, you didn't sort of hear that fringe element. People were joking about how they were cast as such. And a lot of comments about how the prime minister must think they're racist and, and untoward. And that has clearly emboldened people and made these protests grow. They've been, they've been called all these names. And every time they've done that, every time they've tried to drive the wedge, my guess is a thousand more people show up. Alex Brown is our guest, Toronto Today, 640 Toronto. You mentioned two. So let me run two theories past you and see if you agree with them. Based on your comments, you'd probably say more people there are more adults there are vaccinated than not vaccinated. And I'd ask if if more people are upset with the federal government um, than they are their own provincial government. Obviously, Francois Legault and Doug Ford have locked people down intensely hard. Some of that's healthcare capacity. Some of it's just about politics. But um, would both those things be accurate? More people with shots than not. And, and is some of the anger, you know, is it some of the anger misdirected towards the federal government when they just can't control a lot of the local health and education restrictions? Absolutely. I think the protest itself, which came together uh, and I think surprised us with how popular it became and how it just became this snowball rolling downhill. We were all seeing the images on social media for days and the people lining the highways. I wrote an article about um, visiting the 401 when they came through Toronto. And um, 
there, well, it may have started about the border mandate for truckers, and that was the straw that broke their back, their, their proverbial camel's back. So many of the protesters, the supporters there, it was about their provinces. It was about the day-to-day -day mandates. They would tell you, I've had my shots. I'm worried about where this is going. Am I going to be on uh, the sort of mandate peloton forever, where every couple months I, I've got to get this booster? And, and how badly is this going to split my family up? And it was just this way for them to to get that frustration out, I had noted, um, I made a note in my phone to, to, to bring it up in either a column or if I got a chance to talk to a, a bright guy like yourself, that it was about 75% Quebecers. Yeah, um, okay. And, and that doesn't necessarily come out in the coverage. Um, fleur de lis everywhere, liberté. I mean, I speak very poor French, but I feel like I learned a couple verbs while I was down there because it was just this French Anglo-Canada love-in, which I've never seen before. And so much of it was as much a, um, an opportunity for them to get out their frustrations with Legault as it was mm. um, with Trudeau and, and his recent rhetoric. I mean, these were people who lost hundreds of sunsets. That Quebec curfew, yeah. no matter how serious one may want to continue to take COVID or how much credence they give to sort of NPI um, restrictions. That curfew was so divisive. So they don't think, and you don't think by being there, Alex, that um, there's any sort of check mark given to the organizers. Like when you speak to them, they don't feel like it's sort of see something, say something. They're, they're complicit in supporting something that, again, as you said, is really hard to understand feels a little cracked as far as logic goes and and has you know obviously some violent and potentially discriminatory um you know overtones in the language the, the people there that you're seeing in essence tailgating like it's a buffalo bills game they don't feel that kinship per se um but they're also not holding themselves responsible saying we're numbers here that would that would make their cause look bigger through a different lens no, I don't think I don't think it crosses most people's minds. Um, I can even just say personally, like when I was walking around with my Nikon and talking to people, um, maybe to my own fault, I would I would lose sight of, you know, the fact that you know this sort of flat organizational chart that put all this together. That there are some elements of it that are you know make people uncomfortable and and want some things that both hurt their cause and should be dismissed. Um, I, I truly believe that people were there because <laughs> there was an element of FOMO. Um, the, the media is telling you it's, it's Bain's occupation of Gotham City, but it was, I don't remember him having bouncy castles. And it was in many that ways. That was in the director's cut, but okay. I mean, it's already a long movie, so that'd be a It's not, movie. right, yeah. But um, it's, it's, I mean, you had the bouncy castles for the kids. You had a sort of winter carnival atmosphere. Um, it, it smelled like uh, a certain substance absolutely everywhere that when I got home at night, it, it felt like I'd been at a Willie Nelson concert. And it was, um, it was more Burning Man than the Siege of Leningrad. What I see now is, and people tell me this all the time, is a lot of politically homeless people. Because it's not just that COVID has, has rattled us so much. It's when, when we grew up and when our audience was all younger too, the people that wanted to maybe censor things or take things were clearly more right than left. 
They clearly were. They said, you can't love who you want to love. You can't do that with your own body of your woman. You can't listen to that that song on the rate. We're going to ban some videos on MTV. We're not going to allow this and that. And it that script feels like it's flipped a little bit, not just from what we see in the United States, but here. If you're left, this is we got a real juxtapose in our province right now, Alex, and that we have a right leaning government. I point this out a lot that locked us down amazingly hard. I mean, they closed outdoor activities to limit mobility because supposedly to the premier's uh, mind, people get together and have a few pops. And I'm like, well, OK, yeah, if they're vaccinated and the windows are open. And they, OK, but but what we didn't see back was a counter balance from from the opposition parties saying, well, that's ridiculous. That should be open. And we still haven't 23 months later. There's a lot of people. So not to, I'm not just looking to uh, to June and the provincial election. There's just a lot of people that say I feel so adrift from alignment right now with my previous political values. I think we're seeing um, the manifestation of that down south right now where the midterms are coming up. And all of a sudden you see blue states dropping their mask mandates. The science hasn't changed for them to do so. Um, they are terrified of these COVID moms, these vengeful COVID moms who have taken up, taken up arms on Twitter and they're saying, I'm going to vote against you. Heck, I might even run because... I voted left my entire They've life. They've never voted Republican. They hated Donald they Trump, they, but this this has galvanized them. You thought of them voting for Ron DeSantis or anyone Trumpy Jason. <laughs> it makes them, them want to hurl. And yet they're saying, um, I'm willing to do it because I'm voting for my kid's future. I'm voting for him to dance with his high school crush. Yes. I'm voting for um, people to see his smiling face when he accepts his diploma. I'm voting for him to hit that game-winning three-pointer and my... You know, my husband and I can actually be there. We're not stuck in the parking lot in N95s. And I'm seeing a lot of similar Ontarians on our level who are saying, I don't want to vote for Doug Ford. I believe he's made a lot of mistakes. We at one point were the lockdown capital of North America. You could make the case that outside of Australia and New Zealand, we've given them a run for their money. But I know and I've gotten to know online from, from folks who've been voicing their opinions all kinds of mothers and fathers and, and business owners that normally lean left, professors, scientists, doctors who have just said, oh my gosh, I think I have to vote for Doug Ford because the left is not representing us right now. They're not stepping up for the workers. They're not stepping up for the kids. They're clearly aligning, aligning themselves more with teachers unions who um, you know, have their own self-interests. And they're incredibly worried that a vote for anyone but Ford means a vote for another year on the QR code treadmill and another year of their kid not seeing faces. And I understand those concerns and I feel them, too. I don't want to vote for Doug Ford. I mean, I hear from people all the time who say my parents are 75. They've got three shots. They but they're, here's what they're limited. They 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 want to go to the gym. They want the choice. They're willing to be out there. There's a lot of 75 year olds that are healthier than other 75 year olds. No, and understandably so. I mean, I think we've had. It's become obvious to many that special interests have played this government like a fiddle. To borrow from a an epidemiologist, I really admire. And you have to wonder that after the election. Mm. Um, will restrictions remain? If there is a, a, a left-leaning coalition, will Ontario find itself as the only place in Canada on the QR code system? And what's that going to mean for the, the growing divisions inside our families and our friendships and our communities when we reach this wonderfully high vaccination number? And we should be proud of that. 
but are we really willing to break the country to get to that additional 10%? And are we willing to further alienate those who have had two shots, but have valid concerns about, you know, what's this sort of booster Peloton bike going to look like where we're just going to have to stay on this forever? And I, I thought about that watching. I, I tried to picture Teresa Tam for uh, two things were funny this week. Like Jason Kenny name checking Teresa Tam in a positive way. And he's like, as the great Dr. Tam tells us, I'm like, what the hell? And then the second part is, is Justin Trudeau stepping into the House of Commons. He can get emotional. He talked about how the pandemic sucked. And he said the way out of this is vaccination. And I'm thinking 91% of the people watching you right now are vaccinated. And they did that. And, and you just throw up your arms and go, I did. That doesn't appear to be the way out. No. And I think Canadians are, I've really had sort of a moment where after two years of, of being very kind and complacent, they're saying and seeing, you know, other even more progressive countries are building off ramps and we appear to be building this super highway for forever COVID restrictions. And it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you come from. That no. is concerning to many people. Um, there was one sign that really stuck out to me while I was in Ottawa and I wanted to share that with you. And it was by sort of the main stage by by Parliament, and it said, "There's no more. Up, there's no more left or right. There's only up or down." And JT is a downer, and that really made me think that this we've had this sort of axis shift over these last two years, and you're really going to see people behave politically now in a different manner going into this election mm -hmm. uh, in the summer, where they're just gonna they're gonna vote. Uh, in accordance with their family's values, not in accordance with the partisanship of the past or the or the tribes that they belong to. It's hard to see a way that a lot of families aren't dug in on that uh, on that principle. Uh, he's Alex Brown. Uh, joining us, you can read his work on brownstone.org. Um, this was a pleasure. Will you do this again sometime? I would love to. I'm a fan from the Fan 590 days. So anytime you call, I'm, I'm happy to chat. She's got a great book. I'm a big fan of her uh, her work and her television appearances as well. I, uh, I I find she evolves her opinion over 22 months. Who hasn't? This has been four or five different pandemics for most of us. Uh, the book's called Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science and the Fight Against COVID-19. She is Dr. Nicole Sapphire. It is great to have you on here in Toronto. Thank you very much for making the time for our audience. Well, thanks for having me and happy Friday, everyone. Well, thanks. By the way, us Canadians, I know you know us, Nicole, as being uh, very law-abiding, polite, kind of introspective, humorous, but we're, we're changing that a little bit. We're, we want to we get on your news networks more in the United States based on the last two weeks. Yeah, you guys are doing a great job at um, you know, making headlines <laughs> right now. I mean, all eyes are on Canada. You're leading the way. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I take that with a grain of salt. I take that with a whole salt shaker, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, I think to a great extent. What we're seeing right now in the U.S. is fascinating to me, and a lot of it is uh, is is really you know boots on the ground, uh, parents really pushing hard about the logical um, rationale, and especially about the mandates for for masks in schools. It's um, I wish it wasn't political. I just I just think it's parenting. What's been your observation as to how there's been a real flip of the script in the last few weeks? Because the science hasn't changed and a lot of the data hasn't changed um, since early January. Well, you're absolutely right. And actually, you know, I went into masking in depth in my book, Panic Attack. But you're right. The science hasn't changed. Let's let's rewind two years ago where we had this novel coronavirus. We didn't really know that much about it. We had no way of knowing 
how to prevent from getting it, or if we got it, how to treat ourselves from getting it. So it's kind of all hands on deck. We're like, all right, everyone just put on a mask. Let's, let's, hopefully this does something. This lessens transmission a little bit. Well, fast forward, we've gone, now come two years. We have ample data from the United States, even Canada, and all across the world demonstrating that these single-layer cloth masks that the majority of children are wearing really have no role in the prevention of transmission here with SARS-CoV-2. And there's no good quality data that's showing that they have done anything throughout the pandemic to lessen the spread. But we have demonstrated that there have been harms associated with it in terms of decreased socio-educational um, development, uh, as well as some you know, physical conditions, some dental issues, some skin issues. And so now as you have a large swath of the population either having natural immunity, vaccine-induced immunity, or hybrid immunity being a combination of the two, these masks have zero role. They only have um, risk, not necessarily any benefit. And so while I have been advocating to remove these masks from children for well over a year, there is absolutely no reason at this point not to. And I think I think you nailed it. I think it made sense for us as adults when we were unvaccinated. I remember I, I remember the sort of swell of emotion and, and sort of strength that I felt my first vaccine gave me. I went back for another one and I thought and I still thought after two shots, though, I ended up getting a third. My immediate danger is over, whereas 14, 15 months ago at this time. Right. We're still kind of navigating, weaving, dodging. Should I do this? Should I do that? Well, the vaccines empowered the vast majority of us. And I thought, well, we can't be equating the mask with the vaccine. And I saw way too much of that. People thinking it's some magical talisman. And some people didn't even get vaccinated because of the emphasis on masks. And, and it, it could have hurt them or even killed them. Well, undoubtedly. And vaccines are still doing a great job at lessening the risk of severe outcomes from COVID-19. Over time, as we have seen, the ability to prevent infection and lessen transmission markedly declines, even getting that third booster dose while it provides a great transient um, boost in antibodies. Those will those also decline over time. So the purpose behind the vaccines and the boosters are to lessen the risk of a severe outcome. But when it comes to this virus, it will become endemic, meaning it's going to circulate. You know, it's going to turn into flu season to COVID and flu season. We're probably going to be dealing with this for years to come, just like what has happened with the flu after the 1918 influenza epidemic. So we have to just change our mindset. But people are still stuck in this place of fear based off of these fear-mongering tactics of manipulated faulty data. And that has been a huge fault of many governments. And so it will be very hard for people to move forward because of this heightened sense of panic and fear that has been instilled in them. But as Omicron, which has been a less severe variant, continues to circulate and we have such high levels of immunity in our population, we need to move forward as a world and also continue to protect the vulnerable. And that may mean you know, continued booster doses and wearing yeah. high quality masks when you're around the vulnerable, but this should not be instilled into the general population. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, kind enough to join us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Her book is Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. We're just, we're, we're a little slow to this game where we've seen a couple provinces say we're going to drop masks um, 12 and under, I, I would make the case, uh, I, I follow a lot of the European countries and their data. I'd never have masked five-year-olds. I'd never have masked six-year-olds based on the lack of data and proof. What I'm seeing too, um, Dr. Sapphire, is some uh, U.S. governors are kind of tying masks in 
with vaccination rates, but a, a vaccinated, you know, even somebody, you know, in, in their late 40s um, is at higher risk from COVID than a six-year-old unvaxxed school child. So I, I don't think we can tie in wearing a mask with a vaccination rate for a community. I don't, I just don't buy that. It is a tragedy what has been done to our children throughout the course of this pandemic. They are the biggest victims of it all, from being taken out of school to the mask wearing to the vaccine mandates and even booster mandates in some children. This are all doing more harm than good. I had a piece in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago discussing uh, vaccinating 5 to 11-year-olds and really breaking down that data. And as you have mentioned, this is the lowest risk group. Yes, there are some severe cases of COVID-19 in children. There have been some deaths, but they are overwhelmingly in children who have some sort of medical comorbidity, who are vulnerable to every respiratory virus that happens, RSV, influenza, what have you. So for the otherwise healthy child, vaccination should be an individual risk. COVID itself poses a very, very, very low risk of severe outcome. And as we saw in adolescent boys, the risk of myocarditis or pericarditis or heart inflammation following the vaccine and even booster is higher risk than COVID-19 inflammation in that age group. And so to, to tie the vaccine mandates to children and masking is absolutely wrong. It will cause harm and it will also cause... Um, more more chances of bullying because all of a sudden you have some children wearing masses masks and you have some children not wearing masks and all of a sudden you are segregating the population and this is exactly what we're trying not to do we're trying to have an all-inclusive environment for our children and all of that will do will undo all of the efforts that we have done masking children has had no place in this pandemic all masks should be removed and at least in canada you're only recommending five and above in the united states god bless our public health officials they're recommending masks in children two years of age and older which is uh, a completely asinine in my opinion Dr. Nicole Sapphire, our guest. One more, I'm asking, then I want to end on a bigger macro question. I'm, I'm having a conversation with my mom last night, who's 76, smoked for 40 years. Um, she's trying to take care of my dad, uh, who's 78. And I get it. Her risk mitigation should be different than mine, which should be different than my kids. I worry, Dr. Sapphire, for, for ages. I think we've had this sort of one-size-fits-all health policy. And some of that is is our is where we're at right now, where we, we don't tell... We get told hard truths by our doctors behind closed doors. Hey, you need to lose some weight. You should stop smoking. You should stop drinking. But we're not willing to get out in front of microphones and on radio shows and have those conversations. And and I just think the one-size-fits-all health policy has really done some damage and to our collective trust in doctors. That's terrible. Oh, you're absolutely right. And actually, uh, not all of us are afraid to come out and say that in public. I wrote an entire book called Make America Healthy Again, talking about how the individuals have caused the um, trillion dollar um, health care problem because of behavioral choices. Now, risk going forward when it comes to COVID-19, absolutely, your parents considered in the highest risk category, in my opinion. But that doesn't mean that they should be put into isolation for perpetuity. What it means is that they need to continue to go with the local health recommendations. If a third booster is recommended, if a fourth booster is recommended, those should be considered in that. And when they are around other people who, um, you know, in close indoor settings, then they themselves should wear a good quality medical grade mask to avoid transmission of the virus. But that doesn't mean that everyone else around them needs to be masked because really the mask is 
is is going to be more protective for them. It doesn't make sense to mask everyone around someone into eternity. We have to move forward as a society. And with that is do everything you can to protect those vulnerable, but you know that there will be consequences if you isolate them. We have already seen that. So we need to make sure that we are still seeing our loved ones because we can avoid COVID all we want, but there are other things that can cause death that cancers, um, diabetes, heart disease, all of these other things. So you need to make sure that they are getting their medical appointments, but they're also seeing their family and friends because mental health is just as important as physical health. Last one for you, the university experience. We had a mom on a few days ago on the show who's got, who, who just had a university graduate. She's got two in undergrad right now. It's so frustrating for her. Um, you know, you, you save money your whole life to send your kids to college. You want their experience to be like what yours was and, and mine was. And it's really frustrating right now. Couple that with the idea, uh, Dr. Sapphire, that some of these kids have had two vaccines and they've recovered from COVID. And I know there's starting to be some pushback in the universe, if for some universities at least, in, in pushing back against mandates. I, I couldn't be more pro-vaccine if I tried for my teenagers and me and my wife. But I, I would find that almost a bridge too far to triple vaccinate someone who's recovered from COVID. All of those shots and that recovery as well within a 13 month span. And that and you're telling me to pay 20 grand for them to go to college. I need to do that. I stop there. I really do. Listen, I have three sons myself. One of them's in college. They've been in college throughout the entire pandemic. Um, it's important a point to make that. Being anti-mandate doesn't mean that you're anti-vax. Those are very important distinctions. And to mandate boosters in healthy young men, adolescents and young men who are fully vaccinated, who have recovered from COVID, who now have this hybrid immunity, which, by the way, all data points to is the strongest and most longest lasting of them all, it is completely anti-science. And there will be consequences. Some of it is reported. Some of it is not. These young men are at a higher risk of cardiac inflammation, and we don't have enough data on the long-term effects of that cardiac inflammation. So it is crucial that parents, that public health officials push back on these mandates. For those kids who have hybrid immunity, the data shows that it is protective. It is more protective than those three doses alone. And so to then instill them having to get the booster, it is wrong and it will come with risks. And there have been a few in the United States that have been very vocal about that. My friend and colleague, Johns Hopkins Professor Marty McCary, he has been one of the most um, vocal about it. And I encourage everyone to read about it because the science does not support it. But the only way you will see a change is if people band together and protest. Uh, I don't want to uh, <clears throat> say anything about the truckers, but sometimes <laughs> you do have to do something um, big to get people's attention or else you will be falling in line. And as we have seen throughout the course of this pandemic, a lot of the things that are coming from the top down ultimately turn out to be harmful and anti-science. The book is Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Our, our reaction already to your appearance is uh, people are big fans of you. Thank you for making time, talking it straight. Um, you know, we got to. You're right. We got to go out on tree branches sometimes if we're going to see uh, beyond the tree. And I can't thank you enough for coming on our show. You're an honorary Torontonian. Come see us sometime as well. Thank you for making the time for us. That's Doctor Nicole Sapphire. You know, in a normal world, we'd be deep into the Olympics right now. By the way, Canada's women up on uh, Sweden's women, obviously, um, one nothing. I hope we hold on. You just never know. Okay, we do know. 
uh, and the Super Bowl weekend as well. So what will television ratings be like? Well, Adam Seaborn measures this stuff, watches this stuff, comments on this stuff, and he joins me now on Toronto Today. Um, do you think Sweden's going to come back in this one? <laughs> I think the Canadian <laughs> women might have this one locked up, but we'll see. <laughs> it's very Harlem Globetrotters, Washington Generals. I'll give you that. Uh, not the Washington Commanders, but the Washington Generals. You mentioned this earlier that CBC, there's a lot circulating, right? Massive amounts of dollars for Olympic rights. There's the human rights issues that, um, you know, networks have to sort of walk on eggshells to even reference or, 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 or walk around. Then there's everything, Adam, that's happening in Canada right now. I, it's, it's, it's almost a terrible time to have spent hundreds of million dollars on the Winter Olympics. Yeah, it's uh, listen, it's challenging. And this is the third Olympics in a row that's been in, you know, less than ideal time zone for North America. Um, we saw the CBC send uh, as few reporters and broadcasters as they've ever sent. Um, same with NBC in the United States. They actually pulled Mike Tirico out of the Olympics to come back to the U.S. So um, for, for you know, through five days. Yeah, uh, yeah, for exactly for the Super Bowl this weekend. Um, through five days, the viewership's been down year over year. It's actually been down from Tokyo, which was less than a year ago, only six months ago. It seems as though this is probably one of the least watched and least kind of talked about Olympics ever. And I find, you know, sometimes it takes a while to warm up. I think we had that with Tokyo to some extent, but you're right. The time difference, you've got, you know, Canada's women won the gold medal for, for soccer around 7 in the morning Eastern time, 7.30 in the morning Eastern time that game's going on. Andre DeGrasse won the 200 meters at 5.30 a.m. Pacific time. So it's hard to unite 35, 36 million people um, around those circumstances. Yeah, exactly. And I think, listen, television viewership is something that we talked about. Um, that's only one measure of excitement about the games. You know, CBC will say that there's record number of people watching digitally with their app and things like that. But I think what's kind of more important is the fact that all the political implications going on, not just domestically here with the Freedom Rally and COVID and everything going on in the news, but people don't necessarily want to embrace Beijing and these games because of what's going on. Um, and I think that that hurts the overall hype about the games. And I know that the CBC's talked about the inability to get their reporters outside the Olympic Village doing those human interest stories. It's going to be a lot easier the next games in Paris or Milan or L.A. Yeah, it is. And uh, and and then even Australia, uh, where Brisbane um, has the 2032 um, Summer Olympics. I, and I think you make a great point there about the, the politics. It's sort of the opposite. We we watched for a few years of the Trump presidency wondering if, well, the, the whole Colin Kaepernick kneeling controversy would affect uh, there's there's the whole Clay Travis go woke get broke thing, but NFL ratings have never been stronger, and people just say I, I, I'll align my politics how I want, but when I turn the football game on, I'm watching the football game, and that's all I care about. Yeah, exactly, and I think that you know Super Bowl is going to have probably you know as high ratings this weekend in the U.S. as it's ever had. I don't know if that'll be true here in Canada as well. Doesn't seem to have the same excitement, but. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk about the kneeling and Kaepernick and Trump presidency, NFL ratings going down. And you're exactly right, Greg. They didn't go down at all. They actually hit record highs this year. Adam Seaborn, uh, Media Observer, our guest. Um, the number I see for CTV last year, uh, and I think if you add in RDS as well, was 8.8 .8 million viewers. That's really remarkable in Canada. And that's Tom Brady. That's a huge story. That's finally we're, we're emerging out of covid so we thought, and it was one of the first games that was sort of had a, a half to two thirds full um, stadium. Even the Bills playoff games last year, they had two home playoff games with 6,000 people in that giant stadium in Orchard Park. 8.8 is a huge number. Do you look at everything that's going on politically, everything that, that our, my show has to focus on and go, well, that's really ambitious. You're not going to get 8.8 .8 this year in Canada. 
Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, I've had a lot of people say they've kind of forgotten the Super Bowl is happening this year. Um, I still think the TV ratings are going to be high. CTV is still expecting, you know, 7 million plus viewers. It's going to be the number one most watched thing um, this year on Canadian TV. It'll be 100 million viewers on NBC in the U.S. Um, but remember that most people are not real football fans that tune in. They're in for the pageantry of it, and they're really in for the halftime show. Dr. Dre and Eminem and Snoop Dogg should be a fairly, you know, appealing halftime show. It's in L.A., but it's not Tom Brady. And I don't know if Cincinnati is a market that really people are that excited about. Um, if it was the Bills, I'd be saying a totally different story here. I got about 45 seconds. I know you've you've talked about Canada uh, soccer ratings. And I want to know how next November, um, in the midst of like Leafs, Raptors, all that stuff, how is that going to go with Qatar? You've got a time difference there, but I think it's workable. And this is just something that just does not happen. We don't make the World Cup. We haven't in almost 40 years. How will... How do you think the country responds to that uh, in November? I'm really bullish on Canada soccer. Soccer has a huge global audience. Canada and Toronto specifically has a really multicultural global uh, population. I think that Canada soccer could be, you know, record-breaking numbers in Qatar. Adam Seaborn, Media Observer. We'll have to do this again. Thanks for your insight today and uh, enjoy the weekend and enjoy the Super Bowl. Thanks, Greg. You too. It was great to have you here and listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for checking us out. I won't be here on Monday, but back with you on Tuesday morning, uh, February the 15th. Have yourself a great weekend. Always appreciate you being there for our show.